0: Well, in God's design, uh, again, the ordering of, of his providence this morning, we find ourselves in Zechariah chapter 7. And if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to turn with me. If you don't, uh, you can just listen. Um, we do hope uh, soon to have uh, Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Um, we'll look forward to that, but uh, so you can use one, but you're able to just listen as well. I say providential that we're in Zechariah chapter 7, because on Christmas, uh, the day, Christmas Eve, we ended in chapter 6, which is one of the most beautiful and powerful uh, revelations of Jesus Christ as our high priest in all of the Bible. And that chapter 6 closed the first portion of the book of Zechariah, uh, the various visions that God had given to Zechariah. Now in chapter 7, we find ourselves two years later, two years later, and chapter 7 and chapter 8 belong together. They are the next section, if you will, in the book. This morning, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 7. But this is very timely because this uh, passage, especially verses 1 through 7, call upon us uh, to simply examine our hearts which I can't imagine a better, uh, really, theme for the first Lord's Day message on 2024, the year of our Lord. So let's begin with reading God's word. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version, which I've been doing uh, somewhat lately in the morning service as we read the Old Testament, partly because it translates the Hebrew name of the Lord um, as Yahweh, which, which it is. It's his covenant name. And... Uh, but you can follow along, I trust, in, in your translation, and, and we can benefit together. This is God's word. Now it happened that in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. And the town of Bethel sent Sherazar and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of Yahweh. Speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of Yahweh of hosts. And to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Then the word of Yahweh of hosts came to me, says Zechariah, saying, Speak to all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, are you not eating for yourselves and are you not drinking for yourselves? Are not these the words which Yahweh called out by the hand of the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and at ease along with its cities around it and the Negev and the Shephelah were inhabited? And We'll pause there this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. O oh God who gave this word to your servant Zechariah and to your people Um, now nearly 2600 years ago we come to you and pray that you would bless us and give us understanding and most of all that your holy spirit would help us that we would present to you a heart of wisdom in jesus name amen Well the teaching of this text is very simple and straightforward and we'll end this morning on that. And, and I think this message actually will be rather brief. Uh, the Pope, apparently, I was just told before the service, uh, announced that most homilies now should be eight minutes long. I don't know if I'll make that mark. Um, I'm quite sure I won't. Um, and I have no intention to submit to the Pope. Um, and I'm very tempted to digress on some of his announcements the past few weeks. However, uh, it won't be eight minutes, but it, I trust that this will be actually seriously very helpful as we come to the Lord's table. Because every time we come to the Lord's table, it is a routine. And it is one of the two ordinances we, we, we use the word ordinance, rule, or pattern. And it is a rule. It is a, a command given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. In the church that we are to uh, baptize disciples, that's one ordinance. The other ordinance that we were given to regularly uh, recognize is communion or the Lord's Supper. Eating bread and drinking um, of the vine of, of grape juice and, or wine. And we are in that time to remember that our Lord, he says, do this in remembrance of me. The whole point of worship, the whole point of coming to the Lord's table is that our minds would ultimately be directed to our God, to our Father, to his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the Spirit. Our, our whole point of our worship is God word. It's in its direction. And that's the truth of our lives. Our lives, our thoughts, our why we do what we do is to all be directed to the Lord. But we all know full well that propensity of our own hearts is to go just about in any direction other than the Lord. And it is true even in our worship, no matter whether it's contemporary or traditional, no matter it's high church or low church, whatever you call it, whatever, wherever worship is found, there is a tendency for those who presume to worship God to entertain the practice or the ritual and to lose the heart. And this passage this morning calls us, once again, back to heart religion, which is what I've entitled this message. That what God wants and what God is after, at the end of the day, is our heart. Nothing less than that. He wants our love. He wants our first. He wants our best. He wants our praise. He wants our adoration. He wants our love. That is the clear teaching, and again, we'll come back to that. But I want to begin this morning now having recognized the main teaching of the text and and just orienting you that there's an opportunity this morning as we come to the Lord's table to hear God's word and to act we're going to have to engage our hearts I'm trying to give you a heads up you don't want to go just through the motions this morning not this morning not any morning but not this morning not with this text But several things I want to just observe together about this passage. And really, as I said, chapter 7 and chapter 8 belong together. And we'll be looking at these two chapters the next several Sundays. The setting is two years after uh, Zechariah has has initially spoken and given uh, visions by the Lord. It is 518 years before the birth of our Lord Around that time, we know that because we're told in chapter 7, verse 1, that this is the fourth year of King Darius. So this is two years later. I just want to orient you. The text really becomes clear as you understand some of the historical context. Okay, So notice that it's the fourth year of King Darius and notice that it's the year of King Darius. Not the year of King David. Not the year of King Hezekiah. That's no Israelite king. That's a pagan king. That's a Persian king. And though God has been merciful and caused a remnant of Jews to return from exile in what is modern day Iraq and uh, Iran. He's caused them to return to travel several hundred miles and to come back to a land that had been ravaged. Though they're there, though they're rebuilding Jerusalem, they're about halfway through rebuilding the temple God has been merciful and there's reason to be encouraged. Nonetheless, the kingdom of Judah is not a kingdom at this point. It's a province. It's a county, if you will. And they are under the kingship, not of an Israelite king, not of one in the line of David, but under a foreign pagan king. That's the setting. It is underscored by the fact that it's the ninth month, which is Chislev. That's a Babylonian month marker. Not a Jewish. So there's reminders here that though things are encouraging, there is a remnant that's a small remnant that's returned. I better keep this right here that uh, there's a small remnant that's returned under the ministry of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah. The people have put their hands to the work, and they're rebuilding the temple. They're they're turning their hearts to the Lord. There's houses that are starting to be built, land that's starting to be reclaimed. It's, on the whole, encouraging in light of the fact that just 70 years later, the land had been utterly obliterated. The people hauled off. Another observation is that this contingent in verse two they come from the town of Bethel. Now, just pause right there. Um, if you've read First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles in the Bible, you know that Bethel was part of the split, of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and was one of two infamous places, two notorious centers of false worship that were set up. After the kingdom divided, Bethel and Dan, Bethel was in the south. Bethel was only about 12 miles, is only about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. I I googled it this morning. Uh, I'm not sure of my miles, but I think Barnstead up route 28 is about 12 miles. Does that help give you an orientation? It's really not that far away. Um, But they, of course, didn't have cars. They walk everywhere. But still, The kingdom was divided from Israel in the north, Judah in the south, just north of Judah, of Jerusalem. And when the kingdom in the north split off and rebelled against the house of David, Jeroboam set up two centers of worship, one in Bethel in the south, to keep the people going to Jerusalem. Because he was concerned, hey, if the people in the north of Israel, in my kingdom, go down and they worship God in Jerusalem and Judah... When they're in Judah, they, in Jerusalem, they might be influenced and they might turn against me and turn back to the Lord. Bethel was one of two places where these golden calves were set up, where, where it was vain, idolatrous worship. And those golden calves, you know what they were called? Yahweh. They called, they, when they worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel and Judah, they bowed down before the golden calves. Now, you know your Ten Commandments. That is one of the biggest no-nos. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not. And what they do, they set up not one, but two. So Bethel is infamous as a place of idolatrous, vain, blasphemous worship. And in the evening service, those who have come have patiently worked with me through Second Kings and and Hosea, and, and it's been a bit hard. I, I know you come on Sunday nights, okay, Israel's blowing it again, okay, they have another wicked king who's not, not following, oh, okay, they're following, uh, worshiping God in Bethel and Dan and up on there, uh, yeah, <laughs> for hundreds of years. And Bethel is one of the places. So, this is really remarkable. This contingent of men representing the people, they're coming from Bethel and they're going to Jerusalem. That's the right move. They're not going to seek Yahweh in Bethel, supposedly, because that is not where God, at that time, had revealed to his people he was to be sought. The temple was to be in the city of David, in Jerusalem, the house of the Lord. This is remarkable. Finally, after hundreds of years of rebellion, after 70 years of exile, there's a Small remnant of those from the north, from Bethel, that are coming to where God is to be worshiped rightly. This is encouraging. This is good. Sherazar and Regamelech. Regamelech. I'm sorry if my pronunciation isn't correct. These are Babylonian names. These are Jews, but they have Babylonian names. Again, being reminded. Of the exile that they are men who have returned to the land of Israel they had received Babylonian names when they were living in the land but this is a reminder that uh, these are God's people are still um, a people who are under uh, somewhat the judgment of God they have suffered severe judgment and it's also an indication that these men are among the the godly remnants now, they were sent by the town of Bethel and the men of Bethel to entreat or to seek the face of the Lord of Yahweh. This is good. And uh, we want to be, be not be too quick to be judging of them. Um, yes, God is going to rebuke them. And that's going to be our text this morning we want to be careful before we rush to, to surmise that they were all show and no no heart. I, I don't think so. I don't think the text indicates that necessarily. They are to be rebuked. They are to bring back a tough message to the people in Israel in Bethel and North. But there's no indication that they're coming in absolute false pretense. And this is indicated... A little bit yeah. we're going to cheat we're going to go to the end of chapter 8 it's not cheating really but you know what I mean uh, we're going to go to the end of chapter 8 and there actually um, in chapter 8 verse 20 God here is is giving a future promise uh, an encouragement and it will be that in the future day that peoples not just Jews but the Gentiles will come the inhabitants of many cities they will The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, verse 21, let us go at once to entreat the favor of Yahweh and seek the Lord of hosts. So so the Lord is saying in the future, he's going to restore his people of Israel and Judah. And not only that, there's going to be men and women from Gentile nations, men and women like us, who are going to go and entreat the favor of the Lord. And the point is, verse 21, this is a very, very good thing. This is a good thing. This is why we are here this morning. I I trust we're here to seek the Lord, to worship the Lord. Well, what I'm pointing out is the language in verse 21 to entreat the favor of the Lord or to seek the face of the Lord is the exact same phrase that's used to describe these men coming from Bethel in chapter 7, verse 2. They're men to entreat the favor of Yahweh. So let's give these men the benefit of the doubt. They've traveled at one point likely all the way from modern day Iran or Iraq. They've returned to the land under must duress. They are in Bethel rather than setting up false worship there. They are humbly acknowledging that that God is to be worshipped in Jerusalem and they're coming. As far as they know, we trust to seek the Lord. One more observation. They represent not only themselves but the town of Bethel and the northern tribes. And even God's response you'll see in verse 5 God says speak to all the people of the land and to the priests. So there's two men who are messengers, Sherezar and Regamelech, but they are representatives and God gives a message to them To give to all the people. So. Those are some historical context observations there. And I'm I may seem rather mundane, but that is how you know your Bible, by the way. That's that's what you do. That's how you study your Bible is you. In order to understand a passage, you have to understand what's the setting, what's the time you have to make observations. And I hope this those observations will be helpful As we move forward, Um, I need to just before we uh, go uh, forward, though, there's one more observation I neglected. And I noticed that seven I mentioned that chapter seven and chapter eight belong together. And we know that because God responds in this whole section is a response. And you can see that it's divided up in four words from the Lord. You see that in verse four. The word of the Lord of hosts came to Zechariah. You see it in chapter 7, verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. You see it in chapter 8, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And one more time in verse 18 of chapter 8, the word of the Lord. So there are four distinct messages that the Lord gives to Zechariah to pass along to these two men and to those who have sent them, okay? In the next few weeks, we'll be looking at them. And in the beginning, they are words of rebuke. God is going, these men are coming, we suspect, earnestly, as I've said, sincerely. They're coming to seek the face of the Lord. They're coming with a sincere question about fasting on a certain day. They're coming to the right place. They're asking the right people. They're asking the priests and the prophets. This is all good, And yet God is going to rebuke them. But he's also in this message going to give them the first two are, the first two words from the Lord are in the form of a correction, a rebuke. The last two in chapter 8 are in the form of encouragement. And it might just be helpful for us to pause and reflect as we're learning. What do I expect of God when I come to his word? In our day and age, I, I expect that we we want it one way or the other. Uh, when we come to worship God or we hear a devotional or a message, we, 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 we want it encouraging 99.99999% of the time. But once in a while, we want, we want something tough. That's good. But, but, but regularly to receive a rebuke, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I've, I've had, over the years, a few people uh, uh, critique uh, my preaching uh, to say that there's too much judgment or too much sin. Um, I had a beloved friend who once said, yeah, there's so much sin uh, in your preaching game. And, and I was a younger man, and maybe at that time I didn't hold out the hope of the gospel as much as I should have. But I did think to myself, well, uh, that's because I'm preaching the, the Bible. <laughs> there's, there's a lot about sin in there um, quite frequently, but I'm, I'm asking us together, what's our heart attitude? Are we offended? Are we offended when we come to God to worship him sincerely and we come and he surprises us and he rebukes us? Did you come this morning entertaining the possibility that maybe God might rebuke you in your heart? He might correct you. He might love you he might encourage you I hope you're already encouraged through the truth that we've read Psalm 91 what a wonderful word but I want you to notice here at the outset that God who receives these men and this question starts by correcting them now where does God get off doing that he's God he's God And God loves his people, and God is compassionate with his people. He loves you. He loves me. Oh, how he's long-suffering with us and kind and compassionate. But we must, dear brothers and sisters, always remember that when we come to worship God, when we're dealing with God, public in our worship, private in our daily living, we're dealing with God. God. He doesn't change. He does not care about the polls. He has zero interest in his popularity. He's not biting his nails on the throne because maybe in Western society, the statistics about Christianity or those who are worshiping are going down. None of these things He is who he is. He is I am. And he longs for us to know him, to come to him. And he promises, and we'll see in the next few weeks, promises of a glorious future with us. He supports us. He encourages us, as we sang, day by day. He supports us with promises and so forth. But in love, he corrects us. Jesus, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, as he calls the church in Laodicea, To repent, this is what he says. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. On occasion, when we have a question or something that we're wondering about, we have a pressing question, like these men do. They have a real question, and we're going to look at it in a moment, at at the nature of their question. But they have a question, and we must trust it's sincere. And they're wondering, now that Jerusalem is being rebuilt, the temple is being rebuilt, should they continue on this practice of fasting and, and mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC? They're asking about a certain practice. This is pressing on them. It's it's weighing on their conscience. They, they are seeking the Lord. But notice that while God does want us to seek him, he doesn't reject these men and he doesn't rebuke them for seeking his face. He affirms them actually later. It's a good thing that they're seeking his face. But notice that because we have a particular pressing question doesn't mean that that is the question that is pressing to the Lord on occasion of our questions or of our pressing needs, the Lord may use such an occasion to question us and to point out our real need. There's been a lot of talk these days about people's needs and how the church should address the the real questions that people have. And I understand that there is teaching and preaching as one who, who Teaches and preaches, I understand that we who teach and preach can be guilty of teaching and preaching even God's word in a way that is not helpful. Um, it, it seems removed from your life, and, and that's there's nothing good about that. But in a day and age in which cries for relevance and assumes that somehow the word of God and God himself must be modified, must be adjusted somehow in order to be relevant to our lives. Dear brothers and sisters, with you, I'm calling us to recognize that it's we who in fact need to be relevant to God and to his word, not the other way around. And it's shocking sometimes. And if we're biblical people, we're actually asking God, oh God, because you love those, you rebuke those whom you love, oh God, in your mercy, in this age of, of carnal self-obsession, please don't let me go so far that I'm never shocked once in a while by your word. May once in a while, oh God, in your holy love, please offend me from time to time lest I become too full of myself and begin to think, oh God, that you're just like me. This is a gift that God gives to these men and God gives to us because they come with a question and on the surface, God doesn't even answer it. They come on asking about a specific day and a specific fast and God answers them with three questions. And so we come now in just the remaining moments to verses five uh, rather we'll look at the question we'll look at verses five through seven they come earnestly we must expect on behalf of men and women who are repentant and they ask the question in verse three shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years that Fast, weeping and fasting, was a public display of grief and mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. It's now 518 years before the birth of Christ, 586 years before the birth of Christ, is when the Babylonians dealt the final blow, not just destroyed the city, they actually burnt the stone, uh, the foundation walls, and what happens when... um, massive bits of stone are under intense high heat the the stone itself um, it, it breaks down into dust that's how thorough the Babylonians were in their destruction of Jerusalem and so uh, fasting was and is in scripture a way to demonstrate grief And and fasting is, is commended in Scripture. In the Old Testament, God had only commanded one day, really, the Day of Atonement, in which the people were to humble themselves by fasting. But out of, initially, we must believe, sincere devotion to God, there had developed over the years a practice that on the day that the Babylonians had finally destroyed Jerusalem and the Temple, that was to be a day of mourning and weeping and fasting. And it wasn't the only day. Go to the end of chapter 8 again in verse 19. It it's becomes evident that what these men are asking is not actually one particular day. There, there had developed several fasts in the calendar of the Jewish people. Uh, there was a fast on verse 19, the fourth and the fast in the fifth month. And the fast in the 7th month and the 10th month, four different fasts that had developed. And they, they recognized specific dates. Another one of them was um, after the fall of Jerusalem and after the fall of Judea, the, the murder of Gedalia, the leader that had been appointed over the Jews, which caused just further turmoil. So these fasts looked back to real historical moments. Uh, for the rest of history, we assume that Jews in Israel will commemorate October 7th. They won't forget. That'll be a day in their calendar when they'll remember many men and women and children who were just slaughtered in their homes unexpectedly. And so these fasts, we must presume, were set up initially in sincerity and as a way of not forgetting the past, a way of remembering, but they had developed and, and now 70 years have gone by and now God has caused a portion of the people to return to the land and the, the city is starting to be rebuilt and the temple is, is being rebuilt. And, and so there's a question, should we continue to look back and mourn and grieve Or is God reestablishing the kingdom in such a way that we should no longer do that? There's built into the question a little bit as well. A question about is God going to remain true to his promises? Are we always going to be looking back at our history and the days when when Israel and Jerusalem were destroyed? No, God is going to say he is extremely zealous for Jerusalem. We'll learn in chapter 8. But here to the question, so they're asking about a sincere religious practice. And God uses the occasion of their question to examine them and to examine us. The word of the Lord, verse 4, came to Zechariah and he says to speak to all the people and the land and the priests. I, I, one more observation I forgot in my opening comments, but here we can make it here is we listen to the word of God both as individuals and as part of a people. Do you? Do you listen to the word of God as an individual believer, but do you think of yourself as part of Christ's people? That you're responsible for your behavior, but we are also we in a local church. In our individualistic age, we don't think of ourselves these ways. I am very thankful for these new chairs and... I trust it's a lot more comfortable for you as you sit. But I have to say, if I had a preference, and it's not my preference, but, but if, and I, I really, I was in on the decision to, to order these chairs, but I do like the old pews. I like them. I know they're not very comfortable. You say you haven't sat in those through a long sermon, Pastor. I have. I have. In fact, Chris and I, in seminary, we went to an old congregational church down in Massachusetts and I mean the the pews were just like this. You know those kind? I mean there was there's no tilt back. I mean it's just this and the the seat is about this wide and you know you got to sit there and I've I've done it but one of the positives about pews is that it, it reinforces that we are a people that sit together. I'm glad that these link together but you see these little individual units? So the reality is, though, we are we. And you are you, but we are we. And you cannot be a believer and not be part of the we of Christ. Sorry, not an option. That's the deal. Because Christ is not only saving for himself individuals, which he is, but he is building his church. He is saving a people together for his glory so I say here notice that God has a message for these three men but it's verse five this word is for all the people and to the priests so as we consider in just the next few moments application we're asking the question about ourselves but we're asking the question also about us both are true so God in response to their question asks three questions back which really centers around one question. God responds, not directly answering their question, but with a, an examining question. A, you might call it a cross-examination. God says in verse 5, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, these 70 years, they've been doing this every year for 70 years, And you know it's not easy to fast. Fasting is kind of trendy right now, I guess, as a weight loss or health routine. That's fine, but uh, I'm I'm not big on fasting myself. I uh, and and God gave us food, and uh, we are to enjoy it in moderation. Um, But when we fast, uh, it it can be uncomfortable. Um, For some of you, it's easy. For some of you, it's very difficult. And so this is serious that not just one person, but the entire people, they're not touching any food that entire 24 hour period. And God says, when you fasted on these months, was it actually for me that you fasted? Wow. All this religious routine that you went through, pretty serious stuff. I mean, think of it if we were they used to do this in the days of the Puritans. Before any elder was appointed or anything like that, they would call on the whole church to fast. The whole church not eating, and the whole church coming together and pray. Um, I bet we'd have a little challenge doing that. Maybe we should try, but I'm just saying, you know, it's not that easy. And God says, when you were fasting, hey, what was that about? Was that really for me? He, he asks the second question, really. He says, and when you, verse 6 on the positive, when you eat and drink, are you not eating for yourselves and drinking for yourselves? And then the third question in verse 7, are not these the words which Yahweh called out? In each of these three questions, God is calling us to a very simple task. He's calling us to examine our heart. He's calling us to ask ourselves Why really am I doing what I'm doing? Why? Is it for God? Or is it really for me? Dear brothers and sisters, this this question is hitting all of us this morning. We have to be clear that We are, as sinful men and women, very skilled at developing even religious routines which are good in and of themselves and using those routines for our own pride, for our own self-justification. I, there's a, preacher from past generations in England, J.C. Ryle, who is next to John Owen, probably my favorite Puritan-like author. He has a wonderful uh, collection of reflections. This is called Practical Religion. And uh, J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican pastor, so he knew about routine and high church in England in the 1800s. He has a an essay here called self-inquiry it's interesting it's the first essay in all of these on practical daily bible christian living and the first one is self-inquiry let me just read to you three of the questions that he suggests that we consider he says first let me ask in the first place do we ever think about our souls at all do we ever think about our souls at all that's what God's calling these people to do. Was it for you or was it for me? God is there asserting that you and I, as men and women, have the ability to reflect on the true state of our heart, of our soul. We're not robots. We're not just absolutely bound to the circumstances around us. We are those who have a heart and have a soul, and we are responsible. So Ryle says, do we ever think about our souls? I wonder, do we even have time to think at all? I, I am very thankful for modern technology. Um, I have my phone up here on silence. Um, I, I'm grateful uh, this helps with a lot of communication. Um, I have an iPad, too, and I'm thankful for that. Um, it's, it's very helpful in finding passages, and, and when it's dark in the room, um, and as I get older, I can increase the font size, and the font is lit up, and I'm, I'm thankful for technology. But the reality is, you know and I know, many of us, we have so given ourselves to the technology that we're just like robots now responding to beeps and bops and the latest text that comes along or the latest news feed. And what I'm getting at here is not that this is wrong. What I'm getting at, I'm asking with Ryle, do you ever have moments in your life where you're just quiet and you're not thinking about the week first, what you do? You're having a conversation with yourself before the Lord, maybe with your Bible open, and you're saying, self, what's this about? Who are you for? What are you doing? Is, is, is what you're doing really for the Lord, you say, bought you with his blood? Who's this about? We need to build into our lives. And here we could, we could become like the mystics. <laughs> and we go up on a pillar, and we could abuse the very passage. What did they do? They, they started fasting because that was a good way of remembering. They, they took something that was initially good, and they used that to, to, for something for self. We could, even, we could even do this. You could say, I'm going to examine myself every day at three in the morning. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to take a half hour, and then you could start to use that for your pride. The heart is deceptively wicked, But what I'm asking us with Ryle is, do we even ever think about our souls, their condition? Second question he asks, whether we ever do anything about our souls. That's what the Lord's really after here. He's not just for them to come to a certain conclusion. He's not rebuking them just to slap them on the wrist He's rebuking them. He's correcting them like the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 3, loving them by rebuking them, calling them to be zealous and do something. That's what repent means. Repent means in in common jargon, do something. Change. Don't just contemplate. Do something. What do we need to do? Do we do anything about our souls? God has provided everything necessary for our growth in Christ Thirdly, Ryle asks, and this is very close to the passage, he says, I want to ask in the third place whether we are trying to satisfy our consciences with mere formal religion. Are we trying to satisfy our consciences with mere formal religion? Here you are this morning in a relatively conservative evangelical Protestant church and pretty serious service with the Bible and expository preaching. And and, uh, the reality is, the fearful reality is, that we who who come to a church like this can go out of here into our week with few thoughts about God and satisfy our consciences somehow. Well, at least I'm in a conservative, orthodox, uh, reverent church. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I doubt it. You see, this kind of formalism, this kind of, this kind of self-worship, this kind of godless religion is not far off somewhere. It's not just in your cheap, tawdry, shallow churches. It's even in the most sincere and heavy, serious churches. You can't escape it from the shape of the church or the routines. It's a matter that must be dealt with before God in your own soul. We ask ourselves, why are we here? Why am I living? Is it for the Lord or is it for me? Is it for the Lord or for me? It's just piercing, isn't it? God's question. These 70 years... Was it actually for me? Was it actually for me? Presumably it was, by all accounts, in their words, as they prayed to the Lord when they fasted. It was outwardly for the Lord, but God, who searches the hearts, knew that to some extent, among the people, there were large numbers of them for whom it really wasn't for the Lord. That was true of them individually, and then that became characteristic of them together. They were becoming like what Israel would become in the days of Jesus, when when the dominant religion was the Pharisees' religion, was an external religion, so that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 15, would rebuke the Pharisees and the people and say, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, their heart is far away from me. Their heart is far away from me. Where's your heart? Where's my heart? Why are we doing what we do? And I trust that if you're born again of the spirit of God, that, the truth is you do know God and you started out it was for God. But it's true that once was clear, clarifying purpose in life. Oh God, you've saved me from my sin. Oh God, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Oh God, you, I am your purchased servant and slave. I, I am Whatever I do, whether in word or deed, I am to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God. Whatever little life I have left, my business, my family, my routines, my interests, may they all ultimately come together to be for you. Maybe once we started out that way, but over time we've accumulated the appearance of religion, the form, but we've lost the heart. This morning is a call back to the heart, to examine our own hearts, and where do we go? And with this we close in verse 7. It seems out of place. God has asked the question about why they really did what they did when they fasted and when they ate and drank. And he's calling them to say, hey, you are to love what you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart. He's calling them back to love, to live for him. And then he says in verse 7, aren't not these the words which the Lord called out by the hands of the former prophets? What's going on there? they had actually added this fast. This, was, this fast wasn't commanded in the scriptures. They were all worked up about something that in of itself maybe was innocent and was good, had become part of their practice, but had lost its heart. And in verse 7, God is essentially, they're coming with a question about a fast that they added that wasn't even commanded in the word. And what God is doing in verse 7 is saying, I'm... I'm It's a it's a paraphrase. Are you reading your Bible? You're concerned about this question in your life, or this matter, or that matter on the other side of the world, or or this or that concern, and and we are to bring our concerns to the Lord. But notice what God is doing in verse seven. I've spoken to you. I've spoken to you. Do you want to know how to love me? Do you know how to live for me? You go back to the Bible. You go back to reading your Bible, which is a good occasion here at the beginning of the year to ask ourselves as we examine our hearts, how's my Bible reading? Not as a matter of mere religious r- routine. That, Bible reading can become that, can't it? I checked it off. Did that. Rather than I'm sitting to read to learn of the one who loves me. So we're being asked this morning, where's our heart? And we're being called, as we want to live for the Lord, back to his word. And in just a moment, as we come to the Lord's table, we'll have an opportunity to respond. Let's pray. And so, God, we thank you for rebuking these people at this time. And we thank you that you rebuked us this morning. Father, Lord Jesus, and gracious Holy Spirit, We bless you for your holy rebukes. Oh, please don't ever withhold offending us from offending us. For if you do so, we will wander and perish. So keep us with your jealous, holy love and preserve us for yourself. And we thank you that you hold out to us hope. We thank you that for these men and for these people, following up the message of rebuke, you have messages of wonderful promise and comfort, and and we do too. As we come to the table and remember that you loved us so much that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for your promises, but we bless you this morning for your rebuke. And we ask that on this Lord's day that whatever else happens that each man, woman, boy and girl here that we would not go on very far at all before we pause, maybe even now, and ask ourselves, how is it with our souls? What's our heart? are our heart and our intent to live for you? Please help us in this self-examination. And may it be ultimately, truly, not for ourselves, but for you. In Jesus' name, amen.